0: Welcome to episode six of Pharmacist Matters podcast. I'm your host, Justin Bates. On today's program, we are going to continue our conversation about examining racism in pharmacy. With everything that is going on in the world, this presents the opportunity to educate and focus on mechanisms and solutions to address the barriers to equal access especially as it relates to healthcare services. It is everyone's right to have equal access in a safe environment when receiving healthcare. On last week's episode, we talked about the needs of the LGBTQ community. And this week, we are going to bring our listeners some different perspectives on systemic barriers and biases. I'm pleased to use this platform to continue the conversation and bring insightful guests to share their unique experiences. Silence is not an option, and all people need to be part of the effort on implementing solutions that will improve conditions and bring forth better access to patient care. With us on today's program is Dr. Jaris Swidrovich and Dr. Sandra Lial. Dr. Jaris Swidrovich is an assistant professor in the College of Pharmacy and Nutrition at the University of Saskatchewan. He is a two-spirit SOTAL First Nations and Ukrainian pharmacist from Yellow Quill First Nations. Dr. Savicic is the first self-identified First Nations doctor of pharmacy in Canada, and the first and only self-identified indigenous faculty member across 10 faculties of pharmacy in Canada. Also joining us in today's program is Sandra Leal, who is executive vice president for Symphonia RX, a TRHC solution, and is president-elect of the American Pharmacists Association. Dr. Leal is responsible for oversight and expansion of pharmacist services the focus on outcomes, access, and quality. Dr. Liel received her PharmD from the University of Colorado and her MPH in public health practice from the University of Massachusetts. So Jaris, let's start with a conversation on some of your efforts to correct the story on Canada's first pharmacist. All right, thank you for having me. A few years
1: ago, when it was the Canadian Pharmacists Association 150th, which was the same year as Canada's 150th, I was speaking at a conference uh, that was honoring Canada's first pharmacist as we uh, have referred to him in the history books. And this is uh, Louis Hebert, um, there was an image of him behind me as I was standing at the podium and I had to take a pause and look back. I was giving an Indigenous health uh, lecture and I looked back and I said, you know, what is is this? Like, this is not right. We've we certainly had medicine men, medicine women, and two spirit medicine people on this land far before uh, that French settler arrived in what we now call Canada. Um, and certainly, the profession of pharmacy has changed drastically since uh, what what he did here in Canada then, and uh, what pharmacy is now. Um, so, for, for folks who said who might say that, uh, well, the the pharmacists like what we now call pharmacists is more so what he was well that's just not accurate either because the discipline has changed so drastically so uh, i i think that we've just been complicit or guilty in our profession of pharmacy of perpetuating the same colonial narratives that are existing within within and across our profession and just society in general k-12 to education and so on so I, I wanted to make a point of highlighting that difference in understanding or truth at the conference and then certainly on my social media platforms more recently too
0: and thank you for sharing that because i, I think education and having a fact base on our history is so important to eliminating some of the barriers, as well as uh, some of the biases and misperceptions that exist. And and I want to bring in, uh, Sandra, you to the conversation around some of your experiences in racial discrimination in pharmacy in the United States.
2: Uh, you we're having the same concerns here I- in the United States and with the pharmacy associations. You know, Just recently, um, it was a really great effort uh, by 14 of our national pharmacy associations to issue a joint statement in support of ongoing fight against racism and discrimination and just really reflect on what are the opportunities for us to activate and to do exactly what you're talking about, how to educate, how to make sure that we're evaluating um, the issues that are going on and take an active approach to resolve them. So it definitely goes with um, us learning more about what the issues are. Uh, And then fighting what we're seeing is is something that's very obvious. Um, You know, when I went to pharmacy school, I'm a Hispanic uh, individual. I didn't see a lot of people in my class um, that represented the population that we were trying to serve. And so that is one of the reasons I personally went into pharmacy so that I could represent my community and be able to speak the language uh, because we know that definitely has. Um, a big impact on representation and diversity, Uh, but we still have a long ways to go, and and I'm glad there is so much attention being paid to this now so we can take active efforts uh, to to actually correct the situation and and make a difference.
0: There is so much talk about privilege and really understanding what the systemic barriers are to racism and to achieving inclusivity, tolerance, and respect. And I think part of that is uh, understanding what the unique healthcare needs are of different and communities and ensuring that there's a safe environment uh, of accessing care jeres i wanted to bring you in on on some of that conversation as it relates to indigenous peoples and in, in canada and, and get your perspective on what are the unique healthcare needs and where where are the gaps what are we doing wrong and what can we be doing better
1: thank you um i think that the response to that question is um, quite lengthy and something that we don't have the time for but i am happy to Share at least a few pieces. I think that what was called for in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which was created by and still housed with uh, survivors of the Indian residential school system in Canada, uh, they called for. Um, an acknowledgement that the current state of Indigenous Peoples' Health in Canada is a direct result of previous Canadian government policies and practices. So I think that that acknowledgement is one of the first and foremost pieces that we need to make. Uh, Too often do I hear just a focus on current state. So for example, in my pharmacy classrooms when I was a student first, and then even still in some professional settings now, we hear about Higher rates or overrepresentation of Indigenous peoples or other people of color, for example, in certain disease states or something like uh, smoking, for example. Uh, however, we need to. What we're missing is that acknowledgement and connection to previous and even still current Canadian government policies. For example, in Canada, it was the federal government that decided to have the uh, the reserve system, and with with putting First Nations folks on reserves, the federal government said we'll we'll put you there but we'll take care of you once you're there. That still isn't happening with nearly 100 communities still in 2020 without access to clean water. Uh, I almost feel like what's the point in talking about um, you know, mortality or morbidity benefits of certain medications if, if water isn't even on the radar for some communities. Uh, so a lot of work to go in that regard as well as racism um learning about racism and addressing it, acknowledging it, naming it, practicing anti-racism and anti-racism in, in pharmacy education and the education of other health professionals. Uh, another call to action that was asked or requested by the survivors of the system were increasing representation, uh, as we just heard before from Sandra, uh, representation of of in this case indigenous folks in the pharmacy and medical professions uh, particularly right in indigenous communities so in a province like my own the province of Saskatchewan although we have about 16 percent one six percent of the province being indigenous within the health system about 40 percent or more of all healthcare utilizations are accessed by indigenous peoples Uh, one of the hospitals in the major city of Saskatoon in Saskatchewan, where I have worked at, uh, there's never been a day of less than 40% of all inpatients being Indigenous. So there's just too many pieces still unknown. Uh, I heard from far too many pharmacists and health professionals um, that they had never even really heard about the residential school system, the Sixties Scoop, Uh, and I don't blame these individuals for that. Uh, but I guess I'm blaming our education system, K-12, and anything that comes afterward uh, for not preparing us with that information, uh, which is why I also shared such information on my social media too. Uh, so lots of gaps when it comes down to education, access, opportunity, uh, racism always has to be part of that discussion. And I think that's one that we've often shied away from. Uh, but I look forward to seeing that change uh, as our profession continues to grow.
0: Yeah, I find it absolutely deplorable that we're still having conversations in this country about access to clean water, and and I wonder what is it going to take for you know such a basic human right to be rectified. Um, you know, if you looked at any other place, uh, downtown Toronto, Vancouver, Regina, you name it, and there was no access to clean water, Canadians would be outraged. Um, we hear a lot of talk about that. Know, through various governments but uh, not a lot of action and, and I think you know you have to start at the basics of the looking at the barriers in the socioeconomic status uh, that, that often contribute to poor health uh, conditions um, and, I, and I you know commend you for giving a focus on this and, and continuing to advance the cause because we, we definitely have to set the bar uh, at uh, you know basically fixing these problems and, and whatever it takes. One of the things as follow-up to what you mentioned uh, around inclusion of pharmacy services and that equity and equality of access to services, Is, is it inclusion into the federal program for people in the province of Saskatchewan or any other province in the NIHB, or is it getting inclusion into the provincial programs?
1: Um, even, even broader in scope of that, but but from what you're referring to, uh, there's been issues with, with that. So for example, First Nations and some, or many Inuit folks, not Métis though, uh, have health coverage through the federal government. Um, but healthcare is otherwise a provincial jurisdiction. So in some disciplines like my own pharmacy, Uh, We have specialized programs in some provinces, like what was, I believe, MedCheck in Ontario and something that is called the Saskatchewan Medication Assessment Program in Saskatchewan, uh, which is open to all residents of Saskatchewan except First Nations and Inuit peoples who have coverage through the federal government because the federal health plan doesn't cover the same services that some provinces do. Uh, so in many cases, it's a it's a blessing to have that coverage through the federal government. But also in some cases, it's quite a slap in the face, to be honest, that um, everyone else gets access to it, except First Nations and, and Inuit folks. And f- quite often, it's the First Nations and Inuit folks who need the equitable Access. So we, we need stronger access, uh, not less than the rest of the population. Uh, so those health coverage programs certainly are uh, contributory to the problem, uh, but also quite helpful at the same time. Uh, there's still a lot of room to grow there, too.
0: Yeah, when you talk about those gaps in access, um, it's hard to believe they're sitting here in 2020 and we're still having a conversation about uh, basic access to services that are available to other. Um, citizens but not uh, indigenous peoples Uh, definitely something that needs to uh, be uh, addressed and uh, you know bringing attention to it educating people and then coming up with the solutions and getting the political will to implement uh, is going to be critical to that Um, from uh, from United States perspective Sandra um, and some of your your experiences maybe you can discuss a little bit about how race uh, impacts a patient's quality of care and and what pharmacists specifically can do to ensure their patients are getting the care when and where they need it.
2: Well, no, absolutely. I you know, there are so many parallels that that we were just discussing that mirror what's happening here in the United States and we're you know, we're having even a more incredible exposure of that with COVID-19. Um, the water access issues with our own Navajo Nation here in Arizona has been one of the key issues that we've seen and that we have seen impact the population having um, outcomes and the ability to to maintain their safety. Um, So that is very, very much what we're having to deal with here. Um, The American Public Health Association here in the United States is really identifying racism as a public health issue. And there is a lot more discussion happening around social determinants of health in the United States to really look at all of the structures that really impact a person's ability to, um, be able to have good, good care and good access. And so even things like housing issues, um, you know, deserts, uh, pharmacy deserts, food deserts, being able to access, um, the information and the clinicians that people need in order to even have the ability to, uh, to have outcomes that are positive. All of those are, are issues that we're dealing with in the United States as well. So, you know, when I think about, the role of pharmacists—I think about pharmacists being an accessible provider, um, but it doesn't stop just with 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 the pharmacist. It's definitely all of the health system and how we position ourselves um, together to address these areas and look at it from a policy point of view. Um, to say that it's just uh, systems around you know access to walkable communities, it's educational needs—all um, of those things definitely play a role in in people's ability to be able to uh, maintain their care. And one of the populations that I used to work with here um, at a federally qualified health center was the the Hispanic population and also our American Indian indigenous population and focusing a lot on diabetes. So what was again mentioned earlier was just the disproportionate impact that chronic conditions have on populations is, is something that we need to really evaluate and understand um what we need to do in order to actually address the issue and not just from a dealing with it from a you know chronic condition point of view but earlier on and how to prevent it and how do we create <clears throat> things as excuse me <clears throat> things as early as good maternal health um as early on as, as possible so that we offset um the the potential of having so many people continue down this path uh, of chronic conditions so I do feel the pharmacists play a significant role in being able to address this uh, because we are in the communities. We are the most accessible providers um, in some communities and sometimes the only provider. uh, And we're leveraging things like technology. A lot of the work that I do is around telehealth and uh, communication and actually going to rural areas where people don't have um, other accessible clinicians, um, but being able to reach them through those technologies to at least be able to provide some sort of care um, until we address the bigger constructs of the of the barriers that are out there.
0: And you have been a champion for some time around scope of practice, virtual care, and and given the fact that, We've experienced this uh, wave of COVID-19 and we're, we're unsure whether or not we'll be experiencing a future second wave. And with closure of, you know, and certainly in Canada, I, I presume it's similar in the US, we saw some closures of physician offices and an influx of patients coming into pharmacies and not all people have access uh, to a physical location. So the virtual component really is an equalizer in a lot of ways. And uh, I know you were also one of the first, uh, if not the first prescriber, uh, pharmacist prescriber in the state of Arizona. So what do you think of uh, the acceptance and adoption of virtual care as part of that access and and ensuring that everybody gets the care they need?
2: I think it's an absolute... um It's a very significant tool and we've just seen an explosion of use of telehealth. We've been using, uh, currently in the organization I work with telehealth for a number of years. So we were way ahead of the curve um, where people were still a little reluctant to utilize telehealth. But what we've seen is, um, an incredible impact in reaching people that were otherwise not able to go outside their homes. And this is before COVID it's just been exacerbated by COVID now. Um, but we've even created, um, the opportunity to provide access to language um, with with the clinicians that we can bring to people uh through the telehealth model and so when we look at how telehealth is helping is it it is reaching those communities that have barriers to being able to come in Um, a group that I've been working with historically here in the United States is a national center for farm worker health and I think of of that population as being incredibly challenged with their ability to do simple things like have time off of work to come in um, language barriers sometimes they have insurance barriers Um, health literacy is something that we focus on a lot and so The use of technology to come to them and not expect them to come into the clinic walls has been tremendous in our ability to be able to reach people. Um, And even things um, that improve access, like, for example, doing uh, eye screenings for people who have diabetes and being able to do that in a way where we do it where they're at again and not expecting them to go to a separate appointment, all of those create new ways uh, to address the challenges that people have based on how their situation is. And so for me, I feel like telehealth isn't a replacement, but it's an addition that provides more touch points for individuals to have even more care and more access when they need it uh, versus when we expect them to have it. So so it is, um, it is a wonderful tool that um, I, I know people are embracing now because they're having to with this current situation.
0: Jaris, do you experience something similar um, practicing in Saskatchewan as it relates to how pharmacists can help uh, patients during the pandemic utilizing some of the tools like virtual care?
1: Yeah, so my my comments will be just stories from other people versus my, myself because I don't work in that capacity, at least not right now, uh, but certainly telehealth or telehealth related services have been a, a huge blessing. Uh, however, it still doesn't quite meet the needs for lots of folks. And so I think if even people in urban population uh, populations who are experiencing homelessness or living in poverty are not even having a phone, you know, we still actually have pay phones. We need pay phones on the streets because uh, we don't even have phone numbers to call people uh, and certainly not phones with uh, video capabilities Uh, even in some northern rural remote and reserve communities that i've been to uh, cell service isn't even possible nor is internet access so uh, some of these were flying communities and the only way that we were brought from the airplane to the health center was because the folks at the health center Heard the plane coming in and landing, and and need to come pick us up. Uh, but otherwise, there's only walkie talkies across the community, and not even uh, ability to access telehealth services. So um, it still does create a larger outreach uh, in terms of access with with telephone, internet based services. But there's still a number of folks, and often those end up being indigenous folks, or and or people living in poverty, uh, who it still doesn't quite access so lots of missed opportunities there and even for the services that are often provided right in a community uh, for example right now I know that mental health concerns have been uh, on on everyone's radar during isolation and quarantine but the, the therapists and counselors who work on reserve are often um, family members to people in that really small community so even the benefit of something like counseling that folks like myself are able to access with a third-party independent person who's not intimately in your own life. Uh, it's just not even a reality in some of our Indigenous communities um, because those those folks are intimately part of your own life and live in that small community too. Um, so still a long way to go in terms of improving uh, access and opportunity for Indigenous folks, whether in urban populations or rural remote northern reserve and certainly those living in poverty.
0: You raise some great points that uh, this isn't a simple solution. It's not a simple problem. Uh, and we need to look at all of the different complexities in this dynamic environment and, and come up with a holistic and uh, robust solutions that uh, meet the unique needs across the country uh, that will differ and vary based on socioeconomic uh, status, uh, regional differences, um, you know, race, uh, sexual orientation, ethnicity, and so forth. So there's many things to educate. And I, I think for me, my journey through this process is understanding um and learning and listening to some of these challenges so that we can influence and advocate and and better understand you know what uh, the core issues are so you know we want to definitely as an association and then personally want to um, use these platforms that we have to do better, um, and to uh, affect change. Um, the podcast is one, one such vehicle, but uh, there's going to be need to have more and more of these conversations and, and push and drive towards solutions. Um, and speaking of, of that, you know, I read a lot about, um, your petition last year, Jerris, and, uh, you presented it at the house of commons. Um, I know this has been a journey for you. Um, What happened with that petition? And maybe you could just give uh, our audience um, a bit of background on it. Sure.
1: So the the situation I mentioned before about uh, federal versus provincial health jurisdictions and certain services not being offered to Uh, First Nations and Inuit folks were covered by the federal health plan uh, like the Saskatchewan medication assessment program in my province of Saskatchewan. Uh, That was the basis of the petition for the non-insured health benefits plan or NIHB uh, that the federal government offers for status First Nations people and select Inuit uh, folks. Uh, It does not cover those services so what I was asking for was for those that program to harmonize coverage with provincial health programs so if something is available to citizens of a province uh, that same program should be available to first nations and inuit people in that province too Uh, so there were about a thousand signatures garnered from every province and territory in canada and um unfortunately the response that i got back from the minister of indigenous services was uh, not ideal Uh, basically they acknowledged what i was um mentioning and they acknowledged the difference in jurisdictions and basically just said how we need to do better um which was the whole point of the petition so nothing came of it which was really a, a big disappointment I've been thinking about should I revamp the petition and do it again now that there's um, a new but very much the same government as we just had our last uh, federal election in the fall. Um, But it doesn't seem to have worked very well. And I know that many provincial pharmacy organizations have been advocating for the same uh, for a number of years. So I really just tried to attack the same problem from a different angle. Um, but it doesn't seem to be working. I, I, I feel that they heard and and listened to what we have to say, but no actual action has um followed followed that.
0: That's unfortunate and disappointing, but at the same time, you know, when we look at the broader environment, what's happening uh, with social injustices, um, the conversations, um, in some cases, difficult conversations that are happening across uh, the country and and in the U.S. and across the world, maybe the timing uh, is... is, um, the right, uh, it is the right timing to go back at it. And uh, I certainly would encourage uh, you to try uh, try again. I think these are too important, uh, the issues and the impacts to people's lives to uh, not try again. And whatever we can do certainly to help um, influence and support, um, you know, definitely that's a commitment uh, we make uh, and, and can certainly take that uh, as the next steps uh, evolve. Um, on on. A similar vein or similar front in the US, Sandra, the uh, American Pharmacists Association has its own effort to address some of the racial inequalities. And I know there's a task force that has been established. Uh, wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on what the, what is the mandate of this task force? What are the expected outcomes and uh, how you feel about it?
2: Oh, I'm very excited about this task force because it's really bringing um, the light and, and having discussions around how to activate. Uh, so the task force was appointed and it definitely, um, as a result of the, the, the issue joint statement by the different national pharmacy associations, which is great because we have momentum. So, so we have a lot of groups that have a light on this. Um, you know, Jaris, when you talked about your petition and you, know, you didn't see a lot of response, um, it's, I encourage you to keep trying uh, because, you know, I think that just the the fact that you have it out there and that people are um seeing you, following you, you're really inspiring others to hopefully activate. And that's that's one of the things that I think is is something we should really work on is advocacy and getting other people to activate. So you're not the only one um, you know, fighting for this position, but that you have others that follow and that can ca- carry the torch. I always talk a lot about to with the students, I always talk a lot about the importance of being a participant, a participant in change and not just sitting there waiting for something to happen because you have to make it happen. So the task force that we pull together is to inform the board um, and to give us guidance and input on what we can do to really look at policies. How do we talk about fighting racism, discrimination, addressing social determinants? So really getting that um the the group that's there to give us the information that we need and know what we're missing um the 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 group that we met with and i'm part of the task force and had we just had the uh, initial meeting was just an incredible group that represents all practices in pharmacy we have everyone from community pharmacies health systems pharmacies academia and a very diverse background of individuals and all of them just that first meeting we had was so inspired because the, the the messaging that they came back with and what the passion is to address this is so powerful that you, you know, after we finish that, I'm like, wow, I'm so, um, I'm so excited about what the future brings. And it's, the timing is perfect because we're seeing this narrative now playing out in so many other sectors. It's not just in pharmacy, but we're seeing this in, you know, in sports that they've sort of had some of that going already. But just to see that, we're seeing it in the business community. We're seeing it obviously playing out in, um, in our politics right now, the discussions are about very difficult conversations that are happening. It's 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 very challenging to speak. People are afraid, but I think the more that we speak out and try to better understand and educate each other, um, and really pause and reflect, uh, it, it will have a powerful message. So, um, so I think the goal for APHA is to make sure that it has a spotlight, that there is activity, and not just in a statement that's being made, but in actually taking active efforts um, from all aspects, everything from training to practice to policies within pharmacy, um, how we recruit future pharmacists um, that we can start addressing and activating on so that we make a better um, situation happen versus, you know, just kind of uh, maybe not even having enough spotlight to it before. So I think the activity around it and just the spotlight on it is going to be the biggest gain that we have because we're going to take active efforts to make changes.
0: And it's really about that sustained effort that uh, will have specific tools that um, will help address some of those systemic barriers uh, that's going to be critical uh, in looking at some of the outcomes. But you're right, the the conversations, uh, if there's any silver lining over what's happening uh, in the world today, it's that these conversations are much needed and are happening. And people are focusing in on what can they do to contribute solutions. And, uh, you know, silence, I mentioned it on the outset, silence is not an option. We, we all have to have a Part in contributing solutions and being being part of that solution. Um, at Ontario Pharmacists Association, we have just established a diversity task force, and very similar to the task force, uh, Sandra, that you've just uh, referenced. Um, we've got a group of members that uh, represent a very diverse uh, set of backgrounds perspectives and experiences then and we want to first and foremost want to listen uh listen to what the barriers are understand them and then look at how is an association how can we be delivering programs and services that will help address um, and tear down those those barriers but when it look when i look at the tools you know trying to wrap my head around uh, what some of those might look like um, can you comment on that
2: so we're doing basically exactly what you're mentioning also just listening, understanding what tools are needing taking a baseline assessment of what's going on, but even just doing simple things like going through and reviewing um you know established policies and procedures do we have representation um, so that can we can have the right conversation right conversations going to so that we can have those um different experiences represented those are some of the initial steps that we're taking. Um, the tools will come, and it will take form uh, in the form of education. Uh, we already had through our student um, network or through our student group uh, a very good uh, meeting. It was like a, I want to call it a webinar where we invited a, a, one of our fac- one of our previous student leaders who's now leading a lot of discussion around diversity. Um, it was called Rise Up and, and really opened up the conversation with the student group about you know their experiences that they're having. Um, just even how to create a space to have discussions around racism and how to address that so those are the kinds of materials and education that our members are are wanting and the um, the attendance was tremendous and the follow-up on that for more program, more programming like that is going to be some of the initial um, tools and resources that we're going to be putting out there. So I feel like there's a lot of training that needs to happen even just to get people to know how to comfortably speak about these very difficult issues and then how to even bring that up. You know, I, I bring the students up a lot because, you know, they're placed in different um, rotations or in different experiences and they're seeing this uh, in all of these different environments so how do we prepare them to be able to confront an uncomfortable situation have discussions with maybe their preceptors or you know situations that they're seeing patients experience that they can start to address and then actually be activated to be able to make a change if they're seeing something that they don't feel is is right Um, so those are the kinds of things that we want to do: empower these individuals to be able to to practice, um, the, the way they've been trained, um, in a way that's effective and that, that they know they're doing uh, positive outreach and not feeling like they, they don't have, um, anything to offer if they see somebody with a lot of different barriers. So, um, so it will be quite a bit of, of tools that will come out of this, but I think the conversation right now is to figure out, you know, what do we actually need to get out there? In what way do we get it out to these individuals? And, um, what don't we know yet? Because there's a lot of things that we still don't know that we need to really hear, um, so that we can create that that uh, that 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 set of tools to help them.
0: It's inspiring, and and I love the uh, phrase "rise up" because that's really what rise up, step up. Uh, we're trying to do and and to really break down those barriers and and have everyone treat everyone respectfully, have that inclusivity, tolerance um, that we we so desire. And and as a society, when you think about. The the challenges that have been historical. This isn't an an opportune time to really address them head on. And I I think the diversity task force and the task force that's been established uh, by APHA are steps in the right direction. It's certainly um, going to be a multi pronged uh, approach. Um, You know, I'm sure it won't be a one size fits all solution. Um, But you know, starting those conversations and really Focusing and on uh, how do we implement solutions is going to be certainly key. And I think about our role as pharmacies in the community, pharmacists practicing in multiple models, whether it's through institutions, uh, long term care, uh, hospitals, and in the community, we, being the most highly accessible healthcare provider. We have that opportunity to have the dialogue and that trust with the patient. Uh, and we need to use that, leverage it, um, and make sure it's a safe environment um, and meeting the needs of the community. So I thank you for that work uh, that you're spearheading um, Sandra I, I really think it's important uh, and we'll look to some of the synergies and and perhaps lessons learned and shared objectives that we're uh, embarking on as well uh, Jarus I wanted to uh, bring you back into the conversation and talk about it from a pharmacy school perspective uh, as an educator now yourself how do you think the the curriculum needs to change um, and and you know are you seeing some of those changes now or is there a lot of work to do on that front
1: good question um so i've i've been thinking about this for quite some time and i think that that thinking started when i was a student in the program um i've since after doing my bachelor of science in pharmacy and the PharmD degrees i'm a phd candidate right now in education uh, looking at exactly that um how can we um work in pharmacy education to to provide education that folks are missing out on as it relates to indigenous peoples but also in terms of equity diversity and inclusion Uh, i just finished writing a paper submitted a manuscript on uh, pharmacy education for students belonging to diverse and marginalized groups so looking at not just um, topics of equity diversity and inclusion but the language that we use in the classroom, for example, that might consciously or subconsciously further marginalize folks or make them feel isolated in the room. And one example I think of is our trans population. And when we talk about something like pregnancy or breastfeeding considerations for any medication and in any disease state, uh, if there are pregnancy and breastfeeding considerations, I, I know that I've been guilty in the past of just mentioning women. Uh, but the reality is is that uh, trans folks um, you you may not know what parts a person still has and there are certainly men who have a uterus and men who menstruate and men who can carry a baby so uh, or, or a fetus and and give birth. Um, so something like pregnancy and breastfeeding considerations have to be inclusive uh, when it comes to, indigenous, so First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people's health in the Canadian setting, um, a lot, a lot has to change. And I think that some of those changes are happening in relation to your question. And I felt very honoured and um, a, a big sense of responsibility being part of that change process across Canada. So I've been personally to almost all of our pharmacy programs, there's ten in Canada, Uh, to work with members of the faculty on addressing exactly that, and then I I created and chair a group in our um, Association of Faculties of Pharmacy of Canada looking at the same thing, and then also a a national group through the Canadian Society of Hospital Pharmacists in Indigenous Health. Uh, So so looking at pre and post licensure Pharmacy folks. Um, something else on on the agenda for me is also looking at pharmacy technician schools and programs. Uh, I know that many uh, individuals who come through community pharmacies, specifically, sometimes and through some of their visits, they won't even speak to a pharmacist, but they certainly will interact with the pharmacy technician or a pharmacy assistant. So in terms of creating those welcoming, safe, loving, and inclusive spaces in our pharmacies, uh, we really still have to focus beyond just the pharmacists to, um, to just to just to encapsulate everybody. Um, but I'm very happy to see these changes already starting to be made. And um, I know that they're going to continue improving Canada wide too. And I'm so happy to be, to be part of that. It's
0: great to hear that there is some positive um, advancements here and it's encouraging. I, I, I think to, to end it on a note that is somewhat positive that we are making some progress, but there's still lots of work to do. And I want to thank both of you for sharing your ideas and experiences and for all the work you do uh, individually and, and collectively to advance uh, the values of inclusivity Respect and tolerance. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that together we can make a difference, and that we have uh, much opportunity in front of us to continue this work. Um, the conversation never ends. I think it's uh, it's an ongoing dialogue and, and learning experience. Um, education is certainly a huge part of this, but also action um, and the and the will of governments and and societies to ensure that no one's left behind and. Uh, you know, if there's anything that that is uh, positive coming out of what we're experiencing uh, in the world today, with COVID-19, with the racial injustices, um, uh, you know, this this is the 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 part where we can uh, work towards a better a better place, a better world. And uh, as pharmacy and pharmacists and and pharmacy professionals, we have a role to play. And as associations, we have uh, a platform that we need to use for. Affecting positive change. So that's all the time we have for today's program. Um, I thank you once again to uh, Sandra and to Jerris for joining us today. Be sure to tune in next month for pharmacist matters uh, Conversations as we continue to talk about uh, Both uh, racial injustices and uh, the pharmacy community